Hey, good morning. Welcome to Worship at Shades. If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn to the Old Testament book of Job. Now, there's a disappointment for some of you. Some have already come in and we're excited about a book of Job and that you thought you're going to get your job booked uh, today. Uh, I apologize, but uh, I think you'll enjoy what we're getting ready to walk through. The book of Job, it is 42 chapters long, and we're going to cover this in about six weeks. So uh, we're going to be taking a a kind of a fast view through it, but uh, it is uh, one of the older books in all of the Bible. And though it represents one of the oldest books, it is a book that is very relevant to where we are today. Many of you have been blessed by the uh, paraphrase of the scripture called the message. And uh, the compiler of that, the writer of that was Eugene Peterson. And he described the book of Job this way. He said, it's not only because Job suffered that he is important to us. It is because he suffered in the same ways that we suffer in the vital areas of family, personal health, and material things. Job is also important to us because he searchingly questioned and boldly protested his suffering. Indeed, he went to the top with his questions. And it's not the suffering that troubles us, it is undeserved suffering. And so today, we want to look at this uh, book of Job, and uh, we're going to focus on this whole series, which is Suffering, Sovereignty, and Faith. And so if you've got your Bibles open, we start out in the first five verses introducing Job and learning something about this man in which we will focus on in the book. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. If you have a King James Version, I think it says perfect, but they don't mean that he'd never sinned. When they look at a person and say they were blameless and upright, it meant they did the observable things that you should do. He was honest. He had marital fidelity. Uh, He avoided idolatry. He treated those who worked for him well. He was generous to the poor. All of these things. And then it says that they were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. And just to help you to know, that's a bunch, okay? He's got a bunch. And he says, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So he was a godly, wealthy, fulfilled man. And in verse four, his sons used to go and they'd hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Every so often, all the kids would get together and they'd have a feast. And Job, when he knew what those days were, circled them on his calendar, he would then begin to pray for them and offer sacrifices for his kids in case any of them may have sinned. So he's involved in daily quiet time. He's involved in praying for his kids. And so this is this man that we see, the greatest of the East at that time. Then the scene shifts to heaven, and it says in verse six, he says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. There was a day when they presented themselves before the Lord. This was a staff meeting. 
So God had a meeting, a cabinet meeting. I dug deep into the Hebrew, and what I found out in the Hebrew, it was a face-to-face meeting. There was no Zoom, no mask, no social distance. It's heaven. Praise God. All right. So they all met together. And when they met together, Satan also came. Now, Satan, and that word Satan is a word, and it means the adversary, okay? He was the accuser. And so Satan comes into this meeting with the sons of God, the messengers, the angel of God, and Satan's main goal is to destroy God's people and to oppose God's plan. And so verse seven, I love verse seven. God, Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? <clears throat> okay, God is omniscient. He knows everything, right? So he already knows the answer to the question, but he asked the question just so we can get some conversation. And Satan, like some of the people, when we try to get a conversation, doesn't really tell me anything. He says, well, from wherever you come? He says, well, from going to and fro, walking up and down. Didn't give him a whole lot of detail. But yet God knew Satan enough to know that what Satan does is he travels around and what his goal is, is to be able to try to influence other people to see God as uncaring, unloving, and unfair. His goal is to be able to go towards God's people and get them to turn against God and to um, plant seeds of disloyalty among the people. And so knowing this, God says, what about my servant Job? Look what he says in verse eight. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Everything we saw in the first few verses, this is what God is saying about Job. He said, have you considered him? Well, look at Satan's response. Satan comes back in verse nine, and he says, he answered the voice, does Job fear God for no reason? Listen, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. He said, well, sure, he serves you. The reason he serves you is you built this hedge of protection. Look at him. He's the wealthiest guy. He's got great kids. Everything's going well for him. He said, I tell you what, you put some adversity in his life, he'll curse you. He'll turn away from you in a hurry. And so, verse 12. And in verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So he told him. He gave him permission. He says, you can go. And uh, you can stretch out your hand. And you can deal with with his house. You can deal with his possessions. But then he put boundaries on Satan. And he says, but you can't touch him. But you can do these other two things. Well, he didn't hesitate. Verse 13 because uh, verse 12, at the end of verse 12, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so he goes out from the presence of the Lord and verses 13 through 19 are just gut-wrenching. Because when you get ready to look at these verses, you realize, Job, what we just got was a backstage pass in heaven. And we began to hear what the discussions that were going on. And so we know as a reader that something bad is getting ready to happen to Job. Job, he has no idea. He just woke up that morning like he did every other morning. 
And, uh, and it says that um, in verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. So most likely he got up, he's preparing sacrifices, he's going to be praying for his kids, saying, Lord, if there's any sin, uh, may you forgive them of that and may they repent of that. And so I'm going before them. And so it just gets up on a normal day. But it turns out to be a day unlike any other. Because he says, in verse 14, and there came a messenger to Job and he says, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them, took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so the oxen and the donkeys, they have been stolen and all the servants were killed except one and he ran to tell them. Then you come to verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another so this man's giving his report and Job's hearing his report and all of a sudden he can look over his shoulder and there's another guy running really fast towards him. And as soon as this guy's report is over, look what the man in verse 16 says. And he says, the fire of God fell from heaven and he burned up the sheep and the servants and he consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. Thunderstorm, something happened. Uh, thunderbolt hit, ignited a fire, burned and it destroyed all the servants and the sheep. Well, he's hearing this news and all of a sudden over his shoulder comes someone else running over to him. And he says, the Chaldeans formed three groups and they made a raid on the camels and they took them and they struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. So now you've lost all the camels that he had and also lost all those servants except for that one. I just can't get much worse until, uh-oh, here comes another one. And he says, while he was yet speaking, there came another. And he says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness. It struck the four corners of the house. It fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. All 10 of his kids died. Um, he had no idea this was going to happen to him. I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He says, I have found in life when we don't know why we are suffering, the suffering is harder. If I could pinpoint the cause, I could deal with it, confess it, and maybe the suffering will end or at least ease up. But when there is no cause, no sin, no one to blame, no source to identify, the absence of anything tangible leaves us hanging that's exactly where he is. And so when all of this hit, how does he respond? Well, Satan and his demons are just sitting with tiptoe expectancy waiting for Job to curse God and to turn his back on God, just like he predicted would happen. But no, look what it says in verse 20. It says, then Job arose, he tore his robe and he shaved his head. During that day, to express grief over something that suddenly happened, this was natural. You would tear your outer robe, you would shave your head, and that showed that you were grieving. But then, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. Now, read your Bible. He fell on the ground and worshiped. That's not a misprint. It's hard for me to fathom, but that's exactly what he did. And so the tearing and the shaving, that was expected, but falling and worshiping, this sets Job apart from everybody else. 
He didn't shake his fist at heaven and scream, why me, Lord? He didn't go around hunting for some secondary cause. He didn't search for anyone to blame, and he certainly didn't blame God, but he bowed to the ground in humble acknowledgement of God's sovereign will and worshiped him. And then in verse 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Man, it's amazing the response that he got. And this is, a, this is a man who just lost all of his possessions. And this is a man who just had to bury 10 of his children. And then you began to think about it, can't get worse. Oh, wait to get to chapter two. Now, look at chapter two. In chapter two, verses one and two, another meeting. Got another cabinet meeting. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, from where have you come? There's our question again. Satan answered the Lord, ah, going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down. Same nondescript answer. And then God says this, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil, same thing he said about him earlier, but then he says this, who still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And he said, he holds fast to his integrity, even though you gave out undeserved punishment. He didn't deserve what was given to him, but yet, he held fast his integrity. Well, Satan was ready. And look what he says in verse four. In verse four, he says, um, then Satan answered the Lord and he said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. I tell you what, you can take possessions, you can even take family, but once you start taking a person's health and you make them suffer physically, he said, there's no way that they're going to maintain their integrity with you and their faithfulness. So he says it, God steps up. And in verse six, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So once again, what God did was he gave him the okay to do this, but then he put parameters and a boundary. You can touch his life, you just can't take his life. And so in chapter seven, Verse seven, excuse me. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, this is not the only verse that talks about his physical condition. When you go through the entire book of Job, Job will talk about some of the things that he's going through. Uh, they've been compiled. And let me just read this to you. This was his physical um, situation. He had inflamed ulcerous sores that would get infected and then they would burst open and then they would scab over, then they would crack and then they would ooze pus. Now the 1030 crowd's gonna like this as they're getting ready to go to lunch, but let me just tell you, all right, he has a loss of appetite, he has a difficulty breathing, he's lost weight, he has a high fever and he is excruciating continual pain. His disfiguration is so bad that even when his friends come and see him, they don't, almost don't even recognize him. 
And this is where, this is him. But it doesn't end there. Because then in verse eight, it says, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. He sat in the ash heap. Now what the ash heap is, it is the local garbage dump. It is where they go and drop all their trash. It is where beggars live and people who've been rejected by society. And he left his home, he sat there, and he's here in the ash heap, in the garbage dump. The city's leading citizen was now living in abject poverty and shame. He lost his possessions, his servants, all 10 of his children, and now he's not even living at home, but he's at the city dump, scraping boils and sores in excruciating pain. Well, verse nine, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, a lot of people trying to figure out about Job's wife. And one thing you got to realize is she lost 10 children. She had to bury 10 children. She had to completely give up the lifestyle that she was accustomed to and living and uh, lost all the possessions, lost all her kids, lost those servants that she was close to. And so when she comes to Job and she says, you know what, just curse God and die. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? You can look at it one of two ways. One way is it could be coming to him out of pity and just said, you know, I've lost everything and now I've lost my husband. Just go on and curse God and die. Just say enough's enough and let him take you out. Or maybe she's angry and she said, you still hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die. Well, whichever one of those you want to go with, neither one's good. Just want to let you know that. Uh, because just as a side in marriage, listen, if your husband is going through some rough times, uh, try to be a little bit more supportive uh, than that. And, and his response back to her sort of echoed that when he says, don't be as the foolish women would speak. So it really wasn't what he needed at that time. But then look what he says. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Shall we accept the good from God and not also accept the trouble? He continued to suffer in his pain, but he did not sin with his lips. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't question God. We're going to cover that as we go through the rest of the book. Uh, and he didn't, it, it, he questioned his level of suffering and he questions God, but nowhere in here it said, did he ever sin? And so as we introduce this series of uh, suffering, sovereignty, and faith, we need to look at things that we've learned in these first two chapters and they will be a foundation to build on as we go through the rest of this book, okay? So if you've got a pencil, paper, whatever, uh, I want you to write these things down. And they're gonna be in two sections. Number one is the sovereignty of God and the other is Job's faithfulness. God's sovereignty and Job's faithfulness. Okay, are you ready? So uh, it's gonna be a little bit of a rapid fire, but I think we can get it down. And as you write these down, I want you to hold on to them because this is like a bedrock foundation for us to be able to understand the next 40 chapters over here. All right. God's sovereignty, number one, God is totally and completely in control. God is totally and completely in control. 
When you think about the God as he's revealed in the Bible, it says he's eternal. He's perfect in love and power and wisdom and he is unchanging. That means he is in full control and because he is, he has the sovereign right to permit trials and suffering to come into our lives. However, because he is totally and completely in control, you need to know this fact. Nothing touches your life that has not already passed through the hands of God. Nothing touches your life that has not already passed through the hands of God. He is absolutely in charge. God is not limited. He is totally in charge. Number two, God sets limits on Satan's activities. God sets limits on Satan's activities. Because God is sovereign, Satan is always under God's authority and control. Now, although Satan wreaked havoc in Job's life on earth, the limits of his activity were clearly set by God. Every time he gave him permission, he set a boundary there. And it is God who sets the parameters and the boundaries. Now, keeping this in mind, this serves as a template for viewing all evil on earth. Satan does not operate as a free agent, but he's always under the sovereignty of God and under the deciding hand of God. So as we look at our world today, we can be filled with feelings of anxiety and terror and doubt and fear as we looks like our whole world is spinning out of control. But when I look at Job chapters one and two, I have hope peace and confidence because I serve a God who is completely in control and he has put parameters around the evil work that Satan is allowed to do. God is totally in control and because of that, he limits the activity of Satan. Now, the third point I put in here for us to, to keep this a part of our foundation, that is that God is compassionate. Sometimes when you sit there, God's totally in control, doesn't really care about me, or is he just gonna throw bad stuff at me? Listen, God is compassionate. Psalm, we, we could go through tons of verses, but Psalm 86, 15 says this, you're merciful and gracious, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then one of my favorites is Psalm 147, verses three and four. He says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up the wounds. He determines the number of the stars and he gives to all of them their names. Look at that verse. Look at that. Look at verse four. There are a hundred billion trillion stars. Last time I counted. A hundred billion trillion stars. And it says that the God of the galaxies knows every one of them by name. And the same God knows you and me by name and he knows our personal situation and he says, I know when you're hurting and I will bind up the brokenhearted. He knows our situation and he can heal it. And so we're looking here at a God who is compassionate. Boy, if I'm serving a God that is totally in control and I know that he is compassionate, that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of peace. Number four is this, God has a purpose and plan for our suffering. God has a purpose and plan for our suffering. Because we had this backstage pass, we saw the discussion between God and Satan, and we understood part of why he was allowing this to happen. And then in the midst of that, we saw how God was glorified in this suffering, 
and Satan was mortified over the faithfulness of Job's response. He just did not see that coming. But then you need to understand, the book doesn't end right here at chapter two, verse 10. We're not just leaving Job in his misery, oh no. We'll cover the next 40 chapters. And when you get through those next 40 chapters, God begins to unfold and show us his godly purposes even more so in Job's situation. So we will see this even clearer. But we do need to understand God has a purpose and plan in our suffering. Number five, at times God's plans are beyond our comprehension. At times God's plans are beyond our comprehension. Does God have a plan? Yes, he does. Do we understand all time? No. At times, it is beyond our comprehension. There will be sometimes we just don't understand the why. Remember, our perspective is dramatically limited. We look at a pinpoint. God has a panoramic view. And he has a comprehensive plan. And at times, we just can't grasp it. Isaiah 55, eight through nine, it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At times, God's plans are just beyond our comprehension. And last of all, God is not obligated to give us an explanation. God is not obligated to give us an explanation how he works because he's sovereign. He is not required to every time something happens bad in our life to sit down with us and explain to us this is, how it, this is why it happens. And listen, even if God did try to explain it, most of us probably couldn't understand because he has such a big picture out there, we probably couldn't even understand. But we do need to understand he's not obligated to give us an explanation. So if you keep these six truths about God's sovereignty, and then as we walk through these next five uh, these next five weeks, all of this will, will come into play. Last of all is Job's faithfulness. Job's faithfulness. I think his response is really unbelievable. I keep getting blown away the more and more I read about how in the world did he respond that way. And let me give you two things for each of us. And that is number one, held loosely his possessions, held fast his integrity. Held loosely his possessions, held fast his integrity. You remember, his wife had told him, how long will you hold fast your integrity? After the first set of uh, uh, sufferings, you remember God told uh, Satan the same thing. Look at Job. He is one who holds fast his integrity. And the reason he's able to do that is because he held loosely his possessions. That very first uh, uh, listing of things that happened to him, uh, he comes back in verse 21, naked, I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. He says, you know, I was born with nothing and I'm going to leave with nothing. That's why when you have a burial shroud, there are no pockets in the shroud. That's why you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul because you leave it all. And then the way he, he explains it is he talks about the Lord three different times. He said, it is the Lord who gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We have nothing when we're born, nothing as we depart into eternity. So that means that everything that we have is given to us by God. And he says, bless the name of the Lord. Uh, I read one man said, when you understand that everything you have is on loan, you're better prepared to release it when the owner wants it back. Everything we have 
is on loan. And what Job recognized is that ultimately the Lord determines all things. And so he submitted himself to God's sovereign will and he held on to his integrity. And the reason he was able to hold fast to his integrity is because he held loosely on everything else. And last of all is this, he had a communion faith and not a contract faith. He said, I've never heard those terms. Well, we're gonna explain it to you. You ready? He had a communion faith and not a contract faith. Satan, and what's so good about this first two chapters is if anyone ever thinks that Satan is omniscient, he knows all, this has been proven wrong because he did not know Job. He saw from the outside, but he had no idea what kind of relationship he had with God. Because what Satan thought is that he had a contract faith. And what that means is that Job, in essence, made a contractual agreement with God to say, as long as I do what you want me to do, then you will bless me. It's like a contract. And so as long as I continue to be good, then God, you'll continue to bless me. However, if you stop blessing me and if you introduce suffering, deals off. And I will curse you and turn my back on you. And that's exactly what he was counting on. That's exactly what Satan was counting on. But you see, Job did not have a contract faith. He had a communion faith. That word communion is a word that means intimacy. There's an intimacy. There's a sharing alike. And what Job did is that he had a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God that went deeper than just this contract faith. And so in a communion faith, that is why he said, I understand your sovereignty, Lord, and whatever happens, I'm going to look at you and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so let me ask you, what kind of faith do you have? Do you think you could best call yours like a contract faith to where you just keep telling God, if I keep doing good, if I keep checking these boxes, then I'm certain you're gonna keep any kind of suffering, any kind of pain away from me. And then all of a sudden when suffering enters your life, all of a sudden when trials come, then do you bow up and say, hey, what's up with this? I thought that you're supposed to bless me if I did you good. Is it a contract faith or is it a communion faith to where there's this closeness with God and that even in the midst of horrendous suffering, you would be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a statement that an Old Testament commentator made and he said, it's easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such heights. I want you to write this statement down and I want you to digest this and think through this over these next weeks, all right? It is easier to lower your view of God than you raise your faith to such heights. Let me explain what I'm talking about. When you are confronted with the truth of the sovereignty of God and the fact that nothing happens that doesn't first pass through the hands of God, your response is one of two things. Either you will lower your view of God to where you question his goodness, question his power and ability, limit him as to what you think he can do. Because you are angry, you are hurt, and so you lower this view of God. Or when these times of suffering come, do you raise your faith to the heights of saying, even though I don't understand it, 
I can't explain it. Nevertheless, I know my God and may his name be praised. It is easier to lower your, lower your view of God. Angry at him. Shake your fist at him. Why aren't you good? Why didn't you do this? And just come back and, and, and begin to say you are limited and, and I don't want to serve you anymore. Or you raise it to a whole new height and to accept the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, Lord, bless your name. Does that mean that we cannot ask why questions? Not at all. We can do it. This is what Job's going to do. We're going to spend the rest of the book looking at. And God's never worried about that. Does this mean that we don't grieve? No, you grieve. He buried 10 of his children. You don't think he was shedding tears every time the shovel went into the dirt and he's digging another grave? And he said he tore his robes, he shaved his head. Yes, there was grief there. But yet in the midst of all of it, he turned his focus to God in the sovereignty of God and said, I will, I will bless you and I will serve you. And so I think today's a good day uh, for us to be able to share in the Lord's Supper. And I want you to take the elements that you should have received when you came in. And uh, for uh, those who are at home, uh, if you're watching us online, if you can get your elements prepared, uh, we're getting ready to uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, I'm going to help you with this. Some of you have never done one of these before. And at the very top, if you'll just take that, that very top sheet off, there is a wafer. And hold on to that. And then, in just a few moments, we'll then take the next layer off, and that is where the juice. Now, as we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the three words. Suffering, sovereignty, and faith. We look at Job and we say, well, some undeserved suffering. Jesus Christ went beyond that. Because what he did was he took on the sins of all mankind, went to the cross, died for our sins, and paid the penalty for our sins. He did not deserve it, but out of love he did this. And he did it out of the sovereignty of God's will. Because God had a comprehensive plan. And that is that there would be one sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. That one sinless, perfect sacrifice. And when Jesus went to the cross at Calvary and gave his life, when that happened, God then came and he raised Jesus from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he conquered sin and he conquered death. And he gave us an opportunity to enter into a right relationship with God. And then there's faith. And that is that whenever we exercise that faith and we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, he comes into our life and we become a child of God to live for him with purpose here on earth but then one day when we die, we spend eternity with him in heaven. And so Jesus had told us when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we were to do this and to do this in remembrance of him. So let me lead us in a word of prayer and let's prepare our hearts. And as we prepare our hearts, then we will take the elements. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as each one of us, both here in this worship center and also those that are online, Lord, as... Um, uh, as we come to this moment of celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, it is our prayer that you would speak deeply to each one of our hearts. And Lord, convict us. And if there are contract elements to our relationship with you, may we change those and thrive to have more of a communion and intimate relationship with you. 
And Lord, as many people are walking through some difficult times right now, may this be a time where they can be encouraged by your sovereignty. May they look to you and thank you for the love that you've shown through Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, just come in and change whatever needs to be changed within each one of our hearts. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.